This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy Book 4 The Closed Door 2. He is set upon by adversities, but he sings a song. The result of that unpropitious interview was that Eustatia, instead of passing the afternoon with her grandfather, hastily returned home to Klim, where she arrived three hours earlier than she had been expected. She came indoors with her face flushed and her eyes still showing traces of her recent excitement. Yobright looked up, astonished. He had never seen her in any way approaching to that state before. She passed him by and would have gone upstairs unnoticed, but Klim was so concerned that he immediately followed her. "'What is the matter, Eustatia?' he said. She was standing on the hearthrug in the bedroom looking upon the floor, her hands clasped in front of her, her bonnet yet unremoved. For a moment she did not answer, and then she replied in a low voice, "'I have seen your mother, and I will never see her again.' A weight fell like a stone upon Klim. That same morning, when Eustatia had arranged to go and see her grandfather, Klim had expressed a wish that she would drive down to Bloom's End and inquire for her mother-in-law, or adopt any other means she might think fit to bring about a reconciliation. She had set out gaily, and he had hoped for much. "'Why is this?' he asked. I cannot tell, I cannot remember. I met your mother, and I will never meet her again. Why? What do I know about Mr. Wildeve now? I won't have wicked opinions passed on me by anybody. Oh, it was too humiliating to be asked if I had received any money from him, or encouraged him, or something of the sort. I don't exactly know what. How could she have asked you that? She did. Then there must have been some meaning in it. What did my mother say besides? I don't know what she said, except in so far as this, that we both said words which can never be forgiven. Oh, there must be some misapprehension. Whose fault was it that her meaning was not made clear? I would rather not say. It may have been the fault of the circumstances, which were awkward at the very least. Oh, Clem, I cannot help expressing it. This is an unpleasant position you have placed me in. But you must improve it. Yes, say you will. For I hate it all now. Yes, take me to Paris, and go on with your old occupation, Clem. I don't mind how humbly we live there at first, if it can only be Paris, and not Egdon Heath. But I've quite given up that idea, said Yobright, with surprise. Surely I never led you to expect such a thing. I own it. Yet there are thoughts which cannot be kept out of mind, and that one was mine. Must I not have a voice in the matter, now I am your wife, 
and the sharer of your doom? Well, there are things which are placed beyond the pale of discussion, and I thought this was specially so, and by mutual agreement. Clem, I am unhappy at what I hear, she said in a low voice, and her eyes drooped, and she turned away. This indication of an unexpected mine of hope in Eustatia's bosom disconcerted her husband. It was the first time that he had confronted the fact of the indirectness of a woman's movement towards her desire. But his intention was unshaken, though he loved Eustatia well. All the effect that her remark had upon him was a resolve to chain himself more closely than ever to his books, so as to be the sooner enabled to appeal to substantial results from another course in arguing against her whim. Next day, the mystery of the guineas was explained. Thomasin paid them a hurried visit, and Klim's share was delivered up to him by her own hands. Eustatia was not present at the time. "'Then this is what my mother meant!' exclaimed Klim. "'Thomasin, do you know they've had a bitter quarrel?' There was a little more reticence now than formerly in Thomasin's manner towards her cousin. It is the effect of marriage to engender in several directions some of the reserve it annihilates in one. "'Your mother told me,' she said quietly. "'She came back to my house after seeing Eustatia. "'The worst thing I dreaded has come to pass. "'Was mother much disturbed when she came to you, Thomasin?' Oh, yes. Very much indeed? Yes. Klim leant his elbow upon the post of the garden gate, and covered his eyes with his hand. Don't trouble about it, Klim. They may get to be friends. He shook his head. Not two people with inflammable natures like theirs. Well, what must be will be. One thing is cheerful in it. The guineas are not lost. I would rather have lost them twice over than have had this happen. Amid these jarring events, Yobright felt one thing to be indispensable, that he should speedily make some show of progress in his scholastic plans. With this view, he read far into the small hours during many nights. One morning... After a severer strain than usual, he awoke with a strange sensation in his eyes. The sun was shining directly upon the window-blind, and at his first glance thitherward, a sharp pain obliged him to close his eyelids quickly. At every new attempt to look about him, the same morbid sensibility to light was manifested, and excoriating tears ran down his cheeks. He was obliged to tie a bandage over his brow while dressing, and during the day it could not be abandoned. Eustatia was thoroughly alarmed. On finding that the case was no better the next morning, they decided to send to Anglebury for a surgeon. Towards evening he arrived, and pronounced the disease to be acute inflammation induced by Klim's night studies. 
continued in spite of a cold previously caught, which had weakened his eyes for the time. Fretting with impatience at this interruption to a task he was so anxious to hasten, Klim was transformed into an invalid. He was shut up in a room from which all light was excluded, and his condition would have been one of absolute misery, had not Eustatia read to him by the glimmer of a shaded lamp. He hoped that the worst would soon be over, but at the surgeon's third visit he learnt to his dismay that although he might venture out of doors with shaded eyes in the course of a month, all thought of pursuing his work, or of reading print of any description, would have to be given up for a long time to come. One week and another week wore on, and nothing seemed to lighten the gloom of the young couple. Dreadful imaginings occurred to Eustatia, but she carefully refrained from uttering them to her husband. Suppose he should become blind, or at all events never recover sufficient strength of sight to engage in an occupation which would be congenial to her feelings, and conduce to her removal from this lonely dwelling among the hills. That dream of beautiful Paris was not likely to cohere into substance in the presence of this misfortune. As day after day passed by and he got no better, her mind ran more and more in this mournful groove, and she would go away from him into the garden and weep despairing tears. Yobright thought he would send for his mother, and then he thought he would not. Knowledge of his state could only make her the more unhappy, and the seclusion of their life was such that she would be hardly likely to, to learn the news except through a special messenger. Endeavouring to take the trouble as philosophically as possible, he waited on till the third week had arrived, when he went into the open air for the first time since the attack. A surgeon visited him again at this stage, and Klim urged him to express a distinct opinion. The young man learnt with added surprise that the date at which he might expect to resume his labours was as uncertain as ever, his eyes being in that peculiar state which, though affording him sight enough for walking about, would not admit of their being strained upon any definite object without incurring the risk of reproducing ophthalmia in its acute form. Klim was very grave at the intelligence, but not despairing. A quiet firmness and even cheerfulness took possession of him. He was not to be blind. That was enough. To be doomed to behold the world through smoked glass for an indefinite period was bad enough and fatal to any kind of advance, but Yobright was an absolute stoic in the face of mishaps which only affected his social standing. And apart from Eustatia, the humblest walk of life would satisfy him if it could be made to work in with some form of his culture scheme. To keep a cottage night school was one such form, and his affliction did not master his spirit as it might otherwise have done. He walked through the warm sun westward into those tracts of Egdon with which he was best acquainted, being those lying nearer to his old home he saw before him in one of the valleys the gleaming of whetted iron, 
and advancing dimly perceived that the shine came from the tool of a man who was cutting furs. The worker recognized Klim, and Yobright learnt from the voice that the speaker was Humphrey. Humphrey expressed his sorrow at Klim's condition, and added, No, if yours was low-class work like mine, you could go on with it just the same. Yes, I could, said Yobright musingly. How much do you get for cutting these faggots? Half a crown a hundred, and in these long days I can live very well on the wages. During the whole of Yobright's walk home to Alderworth, he was lost in reflections which were not of an unpleasant kind. On his coming up to the house, Eustatia spoke to him from the open window, and he went across to her. Darling, he said, I am much happier, and if my mother were reconciled to me and to you, I should, I think, be happy quite. Oh, I fear that will never be, she said, looking afar with her beautiful stormy eyes. How can you say, I am happier, and nothing changed? It arises from my having at last discovered something I can do, and get a living at, in this time of misfortune. Yes, I'm going to be a furs and turf cutter. Oh, no, Klim, she said, the slight hopefulness previously apparent in her face going off again, and leaving her worse than before. Surely I shall. Is it not very unwise in us to go on spending the little money we've got, when I can keep down expenditure by an honest occupation? The outdoor exercise will do me good, and who knows but that in a few months I shall be able to go on with my reading again. But my grandfather offers to assist us if we require assistance. We don't require it. If I go furs cutting, we shall be fairly well off. Oh, in comparison with slaves and the Israelites in Egypt and such people. A bitter tear rolled down Eustatia's face which he did not see. There had been nonchalance in his tone, showing her that he felt no absolute grief at a consummation which to her was a positive horror. The very next day Yobright went to Humphrey's cottage and borrowed of him leggings, gloves, a whetstone, and a hook to use till he should be able to purchase some for himself. Then he sallied forth with his new fellow-labourer and old acquaintance, and selecting a spot where the firs grew thickest, he struck the first blow in his adopted calling. His sight, like the wings in Rasselas, though useless to him for his grand purpose, sufficed for this strait, and he found that when a little practice should have hardened his palms against blistering, he would be able to work with ease. Day after day he rose with the sun, buckled on his leggings, and went off to the rendezvous with Humphrey. His custom was to work from four o'clock in the morning till noon, then, when the heat of the day was at its highest, to go home and sleep for an hour or two, afterwards coming out again and working till dusk at nine. This man from Paris was now so disguised by his leather accoutrements and by the goggles he was obliged to wear over his eyes 
that his closest friend might have passed by without recognizing him. He was a brown spot in the midst of an expanse of olive-green gorse, and nothing more. Though frequently depressed in spirit when not actually at work, owing to thoughts of Eustatia's position and his mother's estrangement, when in the full swing of labour he was cheerfully disposed and calm. His daily life was of a curious microscopic sort, his whole world being limited to a circuit of a few feet from his person. His familiars were creeping and winged things, and they seemed to enroll him in their band. Bees hummed around his ears with an intimate air, and tugged at the heath and furze flowers at his side in such numbers as to weigh them down to the sod. The strange amber-coloured butterflies which Egdon produced and which were never seen elsewhere, quivered in the breath of his lips, alighted upon his bowed back, and sported with the glittering point of his hook as he flourished it up and down. Tribes of emerald-green grasshoppers leaped over his feet, falling awkwardly on their backs, heads or hips, like unskilful acrobats, as chance might rule, or engaged themselves in noisy flirtations under the fern fronds, with silent ones of homely hue. Huge flies, ignorant of larders and wire-netting, and quite in a savage state, buzzed about him without knowing that he was a man. In and out of the fern-dells, snakes glided in their most brilliant blue and yellow guise, it being the season immediately following the shedding of their old skins, when their colours are brightest. Litters of young rabbits came out from their forms, to sun themselves upon hillocks, the hot beams blazing through the delicate tissue of each thin-fleshed ear, and firing it to a blood-red transparency in which the veins could be seen. None of them feared him. The monotony of his occupation soothed him, and was in itself a pleasure. A forced limitation of effort offered a justification of homely courses to an unambitious man, whose conscience would hardly have allowed him to remain in such obscurity while his powers were unimpeded. Hence Yeobright sometimes sang to himself, and when obliged to accompany Humphrey in search of brambles for faggot bonds, he would amuse his companion with sketches of Parisian life and character, and so while away the time. On one of these warm afternoons, Eustatia walked out alone in the direction of Yeobright's place of work. He was busily chopping away at the firs, a long row of faggots which stretched downward from his position, representing the labour of the day. He did not observe her approach, and she stood close to him, and heard his undercurrent of song. It shocked her. To see him there, a poor afflicted man, earning money by the sweat of his brow, had at first moved her to tears. But to hear him sing, and not at all rebel, against an occupation which, however satisfactory to himself, was degrading to her as an educated lady-wife, wounded her through. Unconscious of her presence, he still went on singing. 
Le point du jour, à nos bosquets rend toute leur parure. Flore est plus belle à son retour, l'oiseau reprend doux chant d'amour. Tout célèbre dans la nature le point du jour. Le point du jour cause parfois cause douleur extrême. Que l'espace des nuits est court pour le berger brûlant d'amour, forcé de quitter ce qu'il aime au point du jour. It was bitterly plain to Eustacia that he did not care much about social failure. And the proud fair woman bowed her head and wept in sick despair at thought of the blasting effect upon her own life of that mood and condition in him. Then she came forward. I would starve rather than do it, she exclaimed vehemently. And you can sing. I will go and live with my grandfather again. Eustacia, I did not see you, though I noticed something moving, he said gently. He came forward, pulled off his huge leather glove, and took her hand. Why do you speak in such a strange way? It is only a little old song, which struck my fancy when I was in Paris, and now just applies to my life with you. Has your love for me all died, then, because my appearance is no longer that of a fine gentleman? Dearest, you must not question me unpleasantly, or it may make me not love you. Do you believe it is possible that I would run the risk of doing that? Well, you follow out your own ideas and won't give in to mine when I wish you to leave off this shameful labour. Is there anything you dislike in me that you act so contrarily to my wishes? I am your wife, and why will you not listen? Yes, I am your wife indeed. I know what that tone means. What tone? The tone in which you said, your wife indeed. It meant your wife worse luck. It is hard in you to probe me with that remark. A woman may have reason, though she is not without heart. And if I felt worse luck, it was no ignoble feeling. It was only too natural. There you see that at any rate I do not attempt untruths. Do you remember how, before we were married, I warned you that I had not good wifely qualities? You mock me to say that now. On that point at least the only noble course would be to hold your tongue, for you are still queen of me, Eustacia, though I may no longer be king of you. You are my husband. Does not that content you? Not unless you are my wife without regret. Oh, I cannot answer you. I remember saying that I should be a serious matter on your hands. Yes, I saw that. Then you were too quick to see. No true lover would have seen any such thing. You are too severe upon me, Klim. I don't like your speaking so at all. Well, I married you in spite of it, and don't regret doing so. How cold you seem this afternoon, and yet I used to think there never was a warmer heart than yours. Yes, I fear we are cooling. I see it as well as you, she sighed mournfully. And how madly we loved two months ago. 
you were never tired of contemplating me, nor I of contemplating you. Who could have thought then that by this time my eyes would not seem so very bright to yours, nor your lips so very sweet to mine? Two months? Is it possible? Oh, yes, tis too true. You sigh, dear, as if you were sorry for it, and that's a hopeful sign. No, I don't sigh for that. There are other things for me to sigh for, or any other woman in my place. That your chances in life are ruined by marrying in haste an unfortunate man? Why will you force me, Clem, to say bitter things? I deserve pity as much as you. As much, I think I deserve it more. For you can sing. It would be a strange hour which, which would catch me singing under such a cloud as this. Believe me, sweet, I could weep to a degree that would astonish and confound such an elastic mind as yours. Even had you felt careless about your own affliction, you might have refrained from singing out of sheer pity for mine. God, if I were a man in such a position, I would curse rather than sing. Yobright placed his hand upon her arm. Now don't you suppose, my inexperienced girl, that I cannot rebel in high Promethean fashion against the gods and fate as well as you? I have felt more steam and smoke of that sort than you have ever heard of. But the more I see of life, the more do I perceive that there is nothing particularly great in its greatest walks, and therefore nothing particularly small in mine of furs cutting. If I feel that the greatest blessings vouchsafed to us are not very valuable, how can I feel it to be any great hardship when they are taken away? So I sing to pass the time. Have you indeed lost all tenderness for me, that you begrudge me a few cheerful moments? I still have some tenderness left for you. Your words have no longer their old flavour. And so love dies with good fortune. Oh, I cannot listen to this, Klim. It will end bitterly, she said in a broken voice. I will go home. End of chapter 2